You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. We will be reading scripture for tonight. Um, It's from the book of Mark, chapter 15. We'll start with verse 21. And unlike a nameless person that may or not be related to me, I will give you a minute to turn to that if you'd like to. Um, I'll read in English, and and Rice will read after me in Spanish. Please rise for the reading of God's word. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief of priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who crucified him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, They said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, and put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was a son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and the younger of Joses, and Solomon. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come with him to Jerusalem were also there. La crucifixión. A uno que pasaba por ahí de vuelta del campo, un tal Simón de Sirene, padre de Alejandro y de Rufo, lo obligaron a llevar la cruz. 
condujeron a Jesús al lugar llamado Gólgota, que significa lugar de la calavera. Le ofrecieron vino mezclado con mirra, pero no lo tomó, y lo crucificaron. Repartieron su copa echando suertes para ver qué le tocaría a cada uno. Eran las nueve de la mañana cuando lo crucificaron. Un letrero tenía escrita la causa de su condena, el rey de los judíos. Con él crucificaron a dos bandidos, uno a su derecha y otro a su izquierda. Los que pasaban meneaban la cabeza y blasfemaban contra él. «Eh, tú, que destruyes el templo y en tres días lo reconstruyes», decían. «Baja de la cruz y sálvate a ti mismo». De la misma manera se burlaban de él los jefes de los sacerdotes junto a los maestros de la ley. «Salvó a otros», decían, «pero no puede salvarse a sí mismo». Que baje ahora de la cruz ese Cristo, el, que, el Rey de Israel, que veamos y creamos. También lo insultaban los que estaban crucificados con él. Muerte de Jesús. Desde el mediodía y hasta la media tarde quedó toda la tierra en oscuridad. A las tres de la tarde Jesús gritó en voz en cuello. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabactani, que significa Dios mío, Dios mío, ¿por qué me has desamparado? Cuando lo oyeron, algunos de los que estaban cerca dijeron, «Escuchen, está llamando a Elías». Un hombre cogió, empapó una esponja en vinagre, lo puso en una caña y se lo ofreció a Jesús para que bebiera. «Déjenlo, a ver si viene Elías a bajarlo», dijo. Entonces Jesús, lanzando un fuerte grito, expiró. La cortina del santuario del templo se rasgó en dos, desde arriba hacia abajo. En el y el centurión que estaba frente a Jesús, al ver oír el grito y ver cómo murió, dijo, verdaderamente este hombre era el Hijo de Dios. Palabra del Señor. Uh, well, good evening. Uh, my name is Ben Milner. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're glad that you're worshiping with us. We are going through the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I highly recommend. Um, this is uh, one of my favorite all-time books, and um, that's because it's mostly the Bible, but it's just that they show how every story in the Bible is actually, in the end, about Jesus, that every story whispers his name as the tagline. And um, I think it's written by Sally Lloyd-Jones, and uh, she is a disciple of Tim Keller, if you will. Um, she knows him well, grew up in his church. That's why, if you know Tim Keller very well, this sounds like a lot of his sermons, um, because they, I think they probably collaborated to some extent on this book. But um, her main um, kind of overarching theme in this book is uh, not just Jesus gener generically, but that, that he has brought a secret rescue plan. I keep using that term over and over and over again. And um, it's a rescue plan from what happened to the world when um, Adam and Eve, who God made, um, were supposed to spread uh, God's dominion and uh, his, they were supposed to garden the earth and reflect God's glory as they spread his creativity everywhere. Uh, but instead of spreading his creativity uh, like gardeners, like humble gardeners, instead um, they fell, and, uh, which means they basically turned in on themselves and they decided that they were going to be like God. They claimed ownership. Rather than stewardship, and they spread instead of dominion, domination. And this thing arose called the empire that you see going throughout the scripture, whether it's the Tower of Babel, or the Egyptian Empire, or the Assyrian Empire, or the Babylonian Empire, or the Persian Empire, or the Roman Empire. It just goes throughout all the scripture, this great statue that Daniel saw, this empire of domination. 
And um, so the secret rescue plan is the way that God infiltrates, almost like a Trojan horse, he infiltrates the empire, and then secretly he, uh, he kind of comes out and uh, he takes over with the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the secret rescue plan. And the king is the heart of the plan. And last week we looked at how the king of the kingdom, um, he turned his face towards the cross at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane is where he essentially set his face towards the cross after this major battle within himself. Uh, should I go or should I not? Should I stay or should I go? Um, I, I, want, uh, I want to let this cup pass from me, but I need to drink this cup to save the world. And after that horrible night in the garden, after that decision is made, he now turns towards the cross and he's going to drink the cup of wrath. And that's what we see here. This is where the victory is won. And I think of this as... Um, like the moment in the Lord of the Rings, if you know the Lord of the Rings, where Frodo and Sam, they agree, they're going to take the ring of power into Mordor, right into the heart of the enemy's territory, which is what the cross is. At the heart of the, the domination system of the, of the empire is the cross. That's what the cross was. It was the Roman system of trying to destroy people and annihilate them and dehumanize them and pulverize them. And so right into the heart of Mordor, so to speak, they take the ring of power to be destroyed there. And right when it looks like all is lost, uh, at the, right there at Mount Doom, where the fire that's going to destroy the ring is, uh, Gollum takes the ring, uh, he, he bites off Frodo's finger, and it's looked like, it looks like evil will win. It looks like Mordor will win. But at that very moment, uh, where it looks like evil will win, he, he falls backwards into the fire pit and destroys the ring. It's uh, J.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, called it a catastrophe. Because right when you think all is lost, a second later, the battle is won. It looks like a ta- catastrophe, but it's actually a catastrophe. Joy will come in the morning. Though there are tears in the evening, joy will come in the morning. It's the whole theme of the Bible, redemption. This beautiful arc of redemption. And uh, that's what we see in this victory. Um, the, the, it's called The Sun Stopped Shining. That's the name of the chapter. And ironically, it's when the sun stopped shining uh, that the world was saved. Um, on the, the three hours of darkness from noon till three when Christ died is when the world was saved. So I want to look at the great battle, which comes to a head, so to speak, here. This is like the place where the battle is most visibly seen. The battle between the kingdom and the empire. And then I want to look at, in the middle of that battle, how God wins this strange victory. And uh, basically he wins by letting evil do its worst on him. He's bring it on. Like Harry Potter, bring it on. All, all the hate, all the, you know, the, the elder wand. Uh, he, he's like, bring it on and I'm going to destroy you as you destroy me. That's, that is the great victory. So the great battle, <clears throat> verse 22. Uh, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And if you've seen Golgotha, it does look like a skull. It's very eerie. It's very creepy. Uh, the name sounds like it is uh, Golgotha. And it was on a hill uh, because the empire uh, wanted to show everyone this is what we do to people who cross us. Anyone who crosses our will ends up like that guy. And it wasn't just him. These crosses were littered all over the Roman Empire. Pretty much at the gates, the, the highest point in the city... Uh, where, where the passers-by would come through, that's where they would put these crosses to show we rule the land with terror. It's a terrorist tactic. Um, it was like psychological public warfare. It was, to, it was to scare people into submission to Rome. And so part of it is not just killing the person, but actually humiliating the person. Now, if, if they don't actually dehumanize the person, 
it's not enough. It doesn't really work. So um, they jeer at him. It, uh, it says, uh, so you're a king, are you? The Roman soldiers jeered. It's a great word, J-E-E-R-E-D. The Roman soldiers jeered. Uh, then you'll need a crown and a robe. And they put a mock crown on him, a crown of thorns, a make-believe crown, to make fun of his pretensions to be the king. And they put a fake robe on him, which is put over the lacerations on his back, and, um, which probably clings to his back. And they make him go up the hill with this cross. So it has to be torture. Uh, if it's going to be the empire, it's got to be a spectacle. It's got to be a show. Um, and so it says in verse 29 that even the people who passed by, you know, that these are people like going through the city of Jerusalem, maybe pilgrims or maybe people in caravans, traders going from Assyria to Egypt, they passed by. And even the passers by had to get in on the action and they derided him. Uh, and then in verse 31, the chief priests and the scribes just laid it on thick. They just kept adding to the mockery. And then even the, ba- the bystanders, just people kind of standing around, they also wanted to join in and make fun of uh, the Son of God as he was there crucified on the cross. And, you know, the public has always loved uh, executions. Um, it was not long ago that we had public executions, and people went to them almost like we would go to a football game. And uh, in the French Revolution, you know, the height of the age of reason, right? The age of enlightenment. Uh, at the height of the age of reason in the French Revolution, in the largest square, the most beautiful square in Paris, in front of the Louvre, uh, they had guillotines everywhere. And people would come in great numbers and watch people uh, subjected to the guillotine. Because people love a public execution. They love seeing blood. And it's like thousands of people just hurling insults on Jesus. Because that's what the empire does. Because that's who the empire is. A system of domination. When I was a young boy and knew nothing about Christianity, my parents were not Christians. Um, they, they read to me the line, The Witch in the Wardrobe, which I had no idea had anything to do with Christ. Looking back on it now, I realized, oh yeah, there's a lot of connections there. But uh, I would, there was one scene where I remember crying because they took this beautiful lion, Aslan, the name of the lion, this regal, beautiful king who heals people and uh, he, 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 lo- he plays with his subjects and he loves them and he laughs with them. Um, and they take this beautiful, majestic lion and the white witch um, makes him go up this hill as he gives himself into her hands and they, they tie him up with ropes and these ghouls and these goblins go up and poke him and they laugh at him and they taunt him and they shave his mane if you've ever seen the movie, it's really hard to watch. They spit on him before she kills him. They have to do all these things just to mock him. And it's C.S. Lewis's way of saying, yeah, that's what the world's like. If you want to see what the world is like, go to the cross. If you ever have any doubt about human goodness, go to the cross. And you'll see if there's not a lot to it. It's kind of thin. It's pretty paper thin. So you have these clear battle lines. You have this battle On the one hand, you have this man who's being crucified, who's called uh, the Christ, the King of Israel, verse 32. He's on the one side, the king who's bringing liberation to the world. On the other side, you have the people wagging their heads, mocking, reviling. These two sides, the kingdom and the empire. And here's the shocking claim of the scriptures. It's hard for us as Americans to take. Um, Who were raised to believe that we were primarily innocent. We came out of the womb uh, mostly as nice people. 
the shocking claim of Scripture is that we have all pledged allegiance to the empire. And that that's who we are. And every human being comes into this world, whether they're born in church or not, every human being comes into the world on the side of the empire. And so somewhere in that crowd is you. That's what the Bible says. Somewhere in the crowd is your face. Uh, you're not going out to hug him. Okay, None of us in this room would have gone out and hugged Jesus and comforted him. We would have been somewhere in that crowd, either making fun of him uh, or maybe just turning away. Um, but uh, it's dangerous uh, and naive to view human nature as anything other than that, as part of the empire. Because we've all bought into the domination system. And frankly, to join the resistance movement, to join the rebel alliance, you have to admit that. You can't be a part of the kingdom unless you admit that naturally you're part of the empire. There's always a defection that must occur. You get, like they say, you get, they, they'll turn someone. You know, they'll, have, they'll be a Russian spy in America, and America tries to turn them and flip them and make them now on the side of America. And that's what has to happen. We have to be flipped or turned and join the other side. We have to make a decision to join the other side. Whether you're a child born in the church or not, at some point you have to make that decision. I'm going to fight against the empire and I'm going to join the kingdom. And a lot of times the energy you have for the kingdom comes from knowing that you made that choice. Um, one of my favorite movies, uh, it's characters in the Star Wars movies, the new ones, which I think are pretty good, the last three. I thought they were pretty good, especially the first of the three. And I love the character of Finn. Because Finn was a stormtrooper, and he helped massacre that village in the very first scene. And he did not join the resistance movement until he realized what he had done. And he took off that stormtrooper helmet, and he joined the resistance movement. And he had energy to fight against uh, Palpatine and the Empire because he knew what he once was. And so there's, a, there's, this, there's no neutral ground. There's no way. Jesus said you're either for me or against me. There is no neutral ground. There's, two, there's, there's a war on. There's a cosmic battle. And uh, it's not Russia. It's not America. It's not China. It's not Democrat or Republican. It's the, the empire and the kingdom. And we all have to be deciding to change sides. It doesn't happen naturally. We have to switch allegiances. Which is exactly what the centurion does who is such a fascinating character in the Gospel of Mark, um, centurions were like the shock troops. They were like the SS. They were the ones who carried out uh, the dirty deeds of the empire. And that's why they oversaw the crucifixion of criminals. Uh, They were the guys you did not want to mess with. Um, They were like Navy SEALs, but they were were evil. Uh, they, They did great harm. They loved to torture. They loved to break bones. And twist arms. And this centurion, here's the amazing thing that Mark does. No one in the Gospel of Mark has understood the identity of Jesus until this man. So Mark places the first confession of the Messiahship, the the divinity of Christ. The first person that ever understands who God was is this man who is in the heart of the Empire Army. I love that. In the heart of the Empire Army. And he turns, he switches allegiance. Verse 39, when this centurion saw how the real king, not Caesar, but the real king, breathed his last, he said, now truly that, that man is the son of God. I don't know what he saw, but he said, Caesar's not the son of God, Jesus is the son of God. And that man will reign forever, and he will take over the world. And his passion to fight came from knowing that he had betrayed the king. 
that he had fought on the wrong side. It's like in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. My favorite uh, character is Edmund, because I identify with Edmund, because for the first 21 years of my life, I hated God. I, uh, I spoke against God. I mocked Christians. Um, I tried to turn my roommate away from God, who was a Christian. Um, and so I love Edmund, because Edmund, when he goes into Narnia, he is the one that turns against Aslan. And he joins the forces of the White Witch. And he's a traitor. And he helps betray Aslan into the hands of the White Witch. That's why she gets a hold of Aslan, because of Edmund. And when Edmund sees what he's done, uh, he repents with bitter tears. Uh, And his passion to fight against the White Witch comes from his awareness of his betrayal. And I just wonder how the centurion fought. I wonder how, once he became a Christian, like, what, did this guy host a house church? I mean, can you imagine his zeal? For the kingdom, he saw Jesus crucified right in front of him. And um, it just makes me ask, what is my passion like? You know, are we willing to kind of swear allegiance to this, this humiliated loser who's carrying a cross up a hill, completely pulverized by Rome, and thought by many people, like, this is the ultimate loss. This is, like, totally embarrassed by an opponent. A team that gets completely embarrassed devastated by an opponent in a game. That's who this is, this man. And, and we're called to swear allegiance to him and to say that this is the man that I worship. This is the man that I follow. Verse 21, uh, the very beginning of the passage, they compelled a passerby. This guy was just passing by. He was compelled by Rome. He didn't have to do this. He didn't want to do this. Well, he did have to do it. He didn't want to do it. And this guy's name is Simon of Cyrene. That's, an, that's a, um, a Roman-occupied territory in northern Africa. So this is an African. Um, this man was compelled to carry the cross, this African man. And we learn in this passage that his sons uh, were both uh, members of the church to which Mark was writing. That's why he says Alexander and Rufus, you know, the sons of Simon. So what I love about that is that the empire tried to make this guy part of the destruction of the Son of God, and instead, they created like the ultimate warrior for the kingdom. Because once he had to carry that cross up that hill, he joined the side of the kingdom of God. And then his sons joined the kingdom of God, and probably they're the first ones to take the kingdom to Africa. They're probably the very first ones that went back to Africa because they were pilgrims, and they took the gospel back to Africa. When I became a Christian in um, 1991, it did not cost much to change sides to switch allegiance. Pledging allegiance to Jesus was like becoming a good Southern American. It was just what you did. And I actually probably gained uh, cool points for doing it. Um, now that's changing rapidly. Uh, it's, changing, uh, it's changed a lot since when I was first a Christian. It's changing quickly now, and it will change a lot in the next 20 years. And I'm not sad about that. Because as this gulf appears between the kingdom and the empire... It just makes it very obvious there is a battle, A, and you've got to choose a side, B. And the sides are pretty clear now. It's not that hard anymore to know which side you're on. And the way that we conquer with Christ is by suffering with him, uh, like he did, like Simon Cyrene did, like the centurion probably did. So that's the battle, and now the victory. And uh, the victory boils down to this, that... that it, it all backfired on evil. It all, it, Satan shot himself in the foot. 
Um, he, he, he's the one who kind of destroyed himself. Uh, again, like, like Voldemort. Uh, he, he's the one that essentially destroyed himself by trying to destroy Jesus. Um, look at verse 26. The, uh, this, is probably in, this is inspired certainly by demonic powers, by, ultimately by Satan. The, uh, they, they wrote an inscription, verse 26. It had the charge against him and it says, the king of the Jews. So he's carrying this, in the picture in the Storybook Bible, he's carrying this cross that says, our king. And of course, they're making fun of him. They're trying to humiliate him, these sarcastic words. The, the Storybook Bible says, the soldiers made a sign that said, our king, and they nailed it to a wooden cross, which Jesus carried up the hill on his back. And they're trying to uh, minimize him, to diminish him. Um, they were trying to make him feel small and um, horrible and shamed. And instead, they're proclaiming the victory. They're proclaiming unwittingly. They're proclaiming, and everyone's seeing this man. It is saying this man is the king. He's our king. And so the, the victory of God is so masterful that it takes everything that comes against it. It takes all the evil that comes against it, and it uses it. It uses its own momentum against itself. It's like jujitsu. That's what that martial art is like. You use the momentum of the opponent against them. So Jesus takes all the evil that is coming against him and he uses it to actually destroy his opponent. So that even the attempt at mockery of him becomes part of the proclamation of his victory. That's why Paul says um, we are more than conquerors. We don't just conquer evil. We actually, evil adds to the conquering. That God takes everything, even the most horrible things we've done and done to us, and he uses those to actually redeem us, um, to bring more redemption in the world. God uh, says that he works all things together for the good, uh, for those who love him. He takes everything, and that especially means the worst thing. As Joseph said to his brothers who tried to kill him, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. I will take everything you try to do against me, and I will flip it. And I will use it for more glory. Probably the worst year of our lives um, as a family was 2020. Of course, you had COVID. So that was bad enough. But also our daughter was absolutely attacked by evil. Um, not that she had no agency in that. But that there, was, there was certainly an attack on her where she came within a hairbreadth uh, of losing her life twice that year. And... Um, just took her down uh, to the lowest possible level. You know, she was just worn down to almost nothing. And in that place, and I was telling her this while it was happening, I was saying, I really believe that God is going to take what is happening to you right now and make you a, a fierce warrior against evil. And that your, your, your humility, Rosabelle, in that place where you are right now, that uh, your dependence on God, um, your desire to love other people will come from the very fact that you are in that low place. And it's, it's happening. It really is happening. Um, what, what has happened to her there has made her love God so much and lean on prayer and, and lean on the scripture and lean on church and community and try to love and serve other people because of that darkness that came into her life. And it was in the darkest hour of my life when my counselor said to me, um, Satan is going to regret everything he's ever tried to do to hurt you. And I just, I think about that line all the time. I've, I've quoted it many times in here. Satan will regret everything he's ever tried to do to hurt you. That is going to come back to haunt him. The things that he has tried to do to destroy you. And certainly uh, the enemies of Jesus bitterly regret crucifying him. 
I mean, the chief priests and scribes, they can't, like 10 years later, they look back and say, why in the world do we do that? That was our undoing the day we crucified this man because now his followers are spreading all around and preaching his resurrection. And he actually even took down the Roman Empire. The Romans were, uh, they shot themselves in the foot again because they crucified this man who then rose from the dead and spread all around the Roman Empire and eventually brought down the Roman Empire through the ethics of Christ. Verse 31, the chief priests and scribes mocked him and said to one another, he saved others. He cannot save himself. And again, unwittingly and ironically, what they're saying is true. Uh, he did save others by not saving himself. Again, they were trying to mock him. But they're actually proclaiming his victory. That when he cried aloud in verse 34, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did not save himself. He chose to not save himself. He let himself be destroyed. He was as lost as you could get. And my, um, this picture of him uh, right here where uh, it's got just his, uh, there's bruises on him and there's cuts. And um, there's, there's just, uh, there's clearly just so much physical damage to his body. And there's a tear coming down. And this is where it says in the book, uh, it says, uh, Papa, Jesus cried, frantically searching the sky. Papa, where are you? Don't leave me. And nothing happened. Just a horrible, endless silence. For three hours, for three hours, from noon till three, darkness covered the land. And I believe that's where he descended into hell, as the creed said. He descended into hell. He completely lost all sense of the presence of God. Hell is the absolute uh, absence of God. It's nothingness. It's like outer darkness. It's coldness. And he went there... And he experienced um, all God-forsakenness in himself. Uh, he, he didn't save others. I mean, he didn't save himself, therefore he saved others. It's just as they said. Again, the story of the Bible says, Though it was midday, the sun could not shine. The earth trembled and quaked. Rocks split in two. It seemed the whole world would break. Three long hours of hell, where he became sin for us. It was like this giant cauldron, um, huge iron cauldron as big as the Son of God, you know, infinitely large in capacity. And God takes all of the mockery and the sarcasm, the domination, the violence, the lust, the bitterness of all of us, of all people, and he throws it into this cauldron. And in Christ, it all is destroyed, and he hurls it into the depths of the sea. All your sin. The story Bible says the full force of the storm of God's fierce anger at sin was coming down. On his own son, instead of his people. It was the only way God could destroy sin and not destroy his children whose hearts were filled with sin. So as Jesus hung on that cross, he was actually annihilating the empire as the empire annihilated him. That's the amazing part of the victory. Satan thought, this is my finest hour. You know, I, I, have, I have finally destroyed the one who has plagued me my entire existence, the Son of God. I have finally taken him down. It's like when Voldemort is strutting around with the Elder Wand, with all his cronies around him in Hogwarts, and he's saying, the boy who lived has now died. And he's glorying, he's vaunting 
himself. But like Voldemort, Satan had actually destroyed uh, himself. He destroyed the evil in him when he killed Jesus. Uh, and, and he realized that when Jesus shouted, again from the Storbit Bible, in a loud voice, it is finished. And it was. He had done it. Jesus had rescued the whole world. Remember, we love these rascals.